0: Alright, let's open up again to Luke chapter 15 as we press on through this uh, parable of the prodigal son. Let's go ahead and stand as we read the scriptures. We're going to start in the middle of the passage we've read at the beginning a number of times. And uh, we will begin in verse 17, speaking of this son. Luke 15, verse 17. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Let's pray. Lord, Father, as we consider this passage again, I pray You feed our soul. Lord, I pray You'd give us, Lord, basic yet profound insights into what You were like. Lord, I thank You You do seek. I thank You You are patient and long-suffering. I thank You, Lord, You desire to show mercy even to the Pharisees, even to us, even to so many, even this moment, who are spurning Your grace. Thank You that Thy heart is restoration, fellowship, mankind who is estranged from Thee. Thank You, Lord, You have provided everything needed that we may approach unto You. We need provide nothing Help us to understand thy great love. Turn our hearts away from the mentality of penance and guilt and wrongfully trying to clean up our sin, trying to bear the weight ourselves, trying to fix it ourselves. Help us to arise and go to our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll see what happens. This probably will be a little shorter than normal tonight, but uh, we'll just we'll see where we end up. Again, these are uh, basic lessons, but important ones for us to grasp. Last time we talked about the path of this prodigal, making of a rebel, the downward spiral of this wayward son. We talked about four main principles with that. He was dissatisfied with the situation even which seems so ideal and of course that dissatisfaction led to a a departure from the place of blessing the same is true really of us maybe not in things that seem so major but many a christian is sidetracked by that very thing things seem to get difficult questions arise whether it's in a church or family situation or whatever else and the tendency is to want to jump ship. There is a time for that in certain settings, but many times it doesn't start there. The Lord would have us bear with a good many things. And so this prodigal swallows the devil's deception. The grass was greener. He had to have it. He had to live it up. And then we see the degradation of sin. Down he goes further and further as the shackles of that boa constrictor tighten tightened around his neck. Becomes more and more wretched. Eventually, he's eating the husk that the swine did eat. And then we ended with his determination to return. You remember, it says he came to himself, his sanity returned to him, which again is what repentance is. Even as believers, when, if you think about it, I mean, you hear a message and uh, or or you read the Scriptures and some sin is pointed out that you need to bring to God and you're pierced by it and you go and deal with it, what's happened is your sanity has returned in large part. I mean, many times what we've been doing is hiding and thinking God's not going to see it or we're going to clean it up ourselves or we're going to make some sort of restitution. We're going to make some sort of penance. And the Lord in His graciousness says, no, no, no. And you return out of that Pig trough. You come out of the faraway country. Concerning his repentance, I don't think I mentioned something that is important. Here's what that is. You'll notice this young man's repentance carried with it a permanent intention. And here's what I mean by that. He wasn't returning temporarily. He used his father's house as some sort of home base until supplies and health are restored and. He had a full belly to go back and return to the far country. Many people unwittingly treat God like that. Many of the lost treat God like that. Lord, get me out of this problem. I I repent. But their repentance is circumstantial. It's some sort of bargaining with God. They're seeming to come to His house for a time until He performs what they want, but their heart is still in a... In a far country remains lodged there. I dare say sometimes we as Christians can do the same thing. Lord, I don't like the circumstances my sin has brought. I don't like the turmoil. I don't like the misery within. Oh Lord, take it away. And once the pains of conviction are gone, I'm going to go right back to it. It's not repentance. He makes a revealing statement in verse 19. He says he's going to determine to say to his father, make me as one of thy hired servants. That's showing one thing, permanence. His days in the far country are over. I mean, a hired servant is a permanent and stable position. His repentance wasn't piecemeal. You ever try to do that with the Lord? Oh, Lord, search my heart. Okay, I'll deal with that, and I'll deal with that, but I'm not going to deal with that. Keep in mind the Lord wants communion with us. Either we want that or we don't. You can't confess sin piecemeal like that when we're aware of it, because that doesn't put us in fellowship with God. We're still not taking His side against our sin. You see, this boy's looking, and it's not so much the deed that was done, but it was the spirit behind it. The fact he wanted his own pathway. The fact that he didn't believe what his father said. By the way, the repentant soul is truly ready to forsake known sin, all known sin. Here's the other thing, though, as repentance shows. It shows he understood there was a loss of blessing as a result... The fruit of his sin. You picture the spoiled boss's son saying that. He returns and says to his dad, not Hey, sorry about let's let bygones be bygones, and back now. He comes back, he says, Make me a, a servant, no more worthy to be called your son. You see, what he realized is the necessary consequences of his actions was to lose certain privilege. And so what he's effectively saying is, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Do you understand the grace of God does not guarantee that you're going to get back privileges you miss when you walk in pathways of sin as a Christian? I think that's something that's hard for us to grasp. I go a certain uh, bypath meadow. I choose to disobey in a certain area. There's many times privileges, blessings that are lost that I'm not going to get back ever. I may not even know what they were. And to come back to the Lord expecting He's going to restore all those things, I'm not talking about my salvation. I'm talking about the gifts that He gives. To come back demanding He restore all those things, that's not repentance, that's bargaining. We don't have a bargaining place when we come to repent before the Lord. A couple of thoughts just introducing the section though. When you look at the structure of this narrative. We touched on it a little bit. Who exactly is the central figure in this parable? Really, I think the parable of the prodigal son, that's some, something man gave to him. Really, there, there's a better name we could come up with for it that really I think would be more accurate. So the younger son, he is the catalyst. I mean, he's the one that highlights the characteristics of the other two main people in the story. He's the tragic figure. But then you've got the elder son. We'll get to him, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks. But uh, he's the one who brought about the telling of the parable in the first place. Remember, he he was the picture of the Pharisees and the scribes. But I would say even that older brother, even though he occasioned the telling, he was not the central figure. And the reason I say that... The reason Christ gives this parable is to illustrate God's reaction to the two different classes of people. You see, what the Pharisees are off on is in their minds they're saying, how can this one deal with such wretched sinners? And what they're saying is, he could not become from God. Why would God associate with those people? The Lord tells this parable to illustrate let me give you an insight into what the Father is like. Let me show you how He responds to sinners like this. It's actually the Father that's the central figure. The parable could just as easily be called the parable of the loving Father, because I do think that's where the divine spotlight is shining. Let I me mean, think about it. What was it really that finally drew this prodigal home? What is it that draws you home when you're prodigal most of the time? Not all the time, but most of the time. It's not threats of retribution. I mean, there's circumstances that brought him to repentance. There's no question. But what finally seemed to bring him back is the remembrance of the stable house of love. Drawn by cords of love. Bound by chains of peace and we would do well to remember that dealing with those in similar circumstances you know it's never a fun thing to have to rebuke a brother sister in christ it's not we shouldn't enjoy it it's never a good thing to enjoy division it's never a fun thing to have to jump into a sinful situation and give counsel telling somebody they're dead wrong and they're against god But oh, how we have to remember to manifest the heart of a loving Father for so many to bring them back. It's the stability, the the character, the radiant heart of the love of God that cuts through the blackness. Remember, it's His love. Many times it brings us to repentance. It's His goodness that does it. That's His first line of defense. Now this week... We'll just talk for a time about the heart of this loving Father. Lord willing, we'll just do part of it tonight and part of it next time, which will be in two weeks. Beginning in number one, we see the Father's loving permission. Okay, verse 12. The Son comes, He demands His inheritance. and uh, Really, we're spared the details because that's obviously not the central point of the story. Perhaps there would have been an attempt to try to reason with this misguided young man, but regardless, the father goes against his previous wise plans, although they're a thousandfold superior to those of his son, and he divides the inheritance early. So the son packs his bags, loads his money clip, he heads to the Greyhound station, and we're spared those details. But a father of wealth and influence and authority could have tried to prevent him and commanded servants to go hire him. He could have chopped down trees and blocked the pathway. He could have issued threats. He could have tried physical restraints. He could have gone ahead to block some way. He could have followed him and found him in a distant land and said, don't you dare outrun me. I will track you down no matter where you go. But in this case, he didn't do it. He gave him his carnal desire and he let him leave with it. Now honestly, in the story at this point, what do you think of the Father? I mean, if this situation wasn't a parable told by Christ as an illustration of God the Father, what would you think? Is this Father overly passive? Derelict? Is He an Eli who refuses to restrain His Son? I don't think that's the point that's being made at all. Here's a vital principle in God's dealings with His people. God's permission does not necessarily equal God's desire. I think a lot of Christians get that one wrong. God gave it, God opened the door. How come? How come? Just because God gives you something, even something you really desire and maybe you've prayed about, doesn't guarantee it's the will of God for you. One of the precious things, I've probably shared this before about journaling, is, is getting a broader perspective about some of these things in life. I haven't had much time for it lately, but our Lord willing, that will pick back up. But one of the things I've seen looking over God's dealings with me over the years, just experientially, I'm honestly convinced there's been times I have asked something of the Lord repeatedly, and He gave it. Years later, I come to understand that wasn't necessarily His will for me. God wanted to show me He's willing to answer prayer, but I was so persistent in it that one of the ways He had to deal with me was to give that to me so that I could learn the lesson that I wouldn't learn any other way. Sometimes God gives divine allowances due to a stubborn heart that's not going to learn the lesson somewhere else. We see that illustrated a lot of different ways. Here's Israel begging for quail. What did He send them? Oh, He sent them quail. Knee deep. Fill the tent. But what did He also send? Leanness of soul. Lord, you got to give me that Great paying occupation. You got to give us that dream, that boat, that whatever it is, and sometimes he gives it, but leanness of soul may come with it. I mean, ask yourself this question in your Christian life: Do you rely primarily on shut doors to determine God's leading? Do you kick and push and shove until God has to restrain you unmistakably? That is a dangerous place to be. Now God sometimes shuts doors, no question about it. It's not wrong to ask Him to shut doors from time to time, that's not what I'm saying. But the leading of the Spirit portrayed in the New Testament is to be convinced to the mind and the will of God from the Scriptures through inward peace, by outward circumstances, to be confident of God's direction based on understanding His mind and heart and to seize upon that and to ask it and to watch God give it. I think this is tremendously illustrated in Psalm 32. The psalmist says, I will instruct and teach, this is God speaking, in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. One of the comments that the theologian Schaeffer makes on that, he says, God's desire in His leading you is to replace the bit and bridle with the glance of the eye. That's one of the marks of Christian maturity. It's not that we're mules with no understanding and God in His loving kindness has to jerk our face around and make us bounce off brick walls constantly. But it's that our mind is constantly being renewed and we see the will of God and we're convinced of it and we go and we watch Him open the door. So it's not so much, Lord, if that's not Your will, slam the door in my face. But it's, Lord, what is Your will? I'm not moving till I know it. And once I know it, then I'm going. Now, God's good. I'll tell you, there's been many times I can, I can look back and so can you and see where you've kicked and prodded and pushed about some desire you had and the Lord slammed it in your face so many times. And now you look back and you say, thank God He did that. I don't know how many times I did that. Lots. Lots of times. <clears throat> Many want to toe the line, straddle the fence, daring God to stop them, daring God to prove His word is true. But we've got to be cautious because next time He may not shut the door. And secondly, we see the Father's patient discipline. <clears throat> there actually is some discussion on this passage, on this note. And you know, many would say, well, there's no way this could be a picture of God the Father because He doesn't do anything. I disagree. I think it is plainly a picture of God the Father. And I would say if we take the whole picture, He does do something. Let me explain. Someone looks at it and says, what discipline? I mean, I don't see the Father doing anything. But God's discipline is an often misunderstood concept. We talked about in Romans 1, the wrath of God. and There's many manifestations of it. Some cataclysmic, some not so much. And the same is true because uh, with the discipline of the Lord, whom the Lord loveth He Chasteneth, he correcteth, but there's a lot of ways he does that. You could say God does, doesn't just have one spank stick and one woodshed; he has several at his disposal. And because his discipline is often misunderstood, I think sometimes it's not recognized when it comes. You think of his discipline, you think of swift and cataclysmic and decisive. Acute physical pain, lightning bolt, heart attack, instant results. What are the manifestations of God's discipline? What are the fruits of walking in the paths of sin? For one thing, there are eternal consequences, and yes, I say eternal. You ever think about the rewards you lose because of disobedience? You lose forever. You make a bad purchase on earth, you lose a thousand bucks. What are you really thinking? I'll make it back. I know the main goal of heaven is God Himself, but one of the byproducts is the rewards He promises us. One of the things we miss out on when we choose to sin is missed rewards forever. Forever. That's what he means, Paul, when he says a man will suffer loss. He'll watch what his life was spent for, burned up, go up in smoke, wood, hay, and stubble. This would take a lot of time to prove, but if I understand things correctly, there's also different degrees of capacity to enjoy heaven. Just as there's degrees of hell, degrees of punishment, You know, there'll be some believers in heaven with a greater capacity to enjoy what God provides there. And part of the way we can lose out on some of that capacity is by choosing to disobey and having our affection set on things below, not on things above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So there's eternal consequences. There's also temporal. There's those things that are internal. There's... Loss of communion with the Lord. You ever think about if we meet each other in town? We just ask each other the question Are you in communion with the Father right now? That'd stop some of us dead in our tracks, wouldn't it? It's a good question, though. The answer could always be yes. So there's a loss of communion with God. There's a loss of the awareness of sonship. If you are a Christian, you are secure in Christ. But one of the things God will allow when you turn aside is a loss of the awareness of that security. Security of salvation is linked very closely to obedience and... Did I say security? I didn't mean that. Assurance. Is very closely linked with obedience. One of the things God will allow when we deliberately walk in paths of sin for some time is for us to wonder if we really belong to Him. That's one of the manifestations of His discipline, to make us stop dead in our tracks and ask that kind of question. It's a good question. <clears throat> There's the constant vexation within. You remember Romans 7. The fact that you possess two natures. And here's Paul saying, with the mind I serve the law of God, or the flesh the law of sin. It's a guarantee when you go sideways into the wrong area knowingly that there's going to be an internal fight. Your new nature is going to vex you and plague you. There's a lack of clear leading. No real boldness in prayer. No real confidence in the direction of the Lord. There's also external consequences. One of the manifestations could be church discipline. I hope we never have to deal with that here. But over time, that's usually the case. (coughs) There could be sudden sickness or death, but here's the most common one, I would dare say. Here's what it is. Letting you and I go And reap the natural consequences of our actions. You want to try Beelzebub's bitter fruit? Well, you're so convinced you want to indulge in it. There's divine restraints to a point, but there's also allowances given to let us reap the fruits of the direction that we think we want to go. And I think the reason this type of discipline is unrecognized is because it's often slow in coming. We maybe don't connect the dots that this is a direct result of a decision made back there. This is one of the things that's going to come through meditation and communion with the Lord and actually stopping to ask Him about the paths of our feet. Why am I going through this, Lord? Many times He's going to open your eyes and say, Do you remember that decision 18 months ago? Do you remember that decision two years ago? Do you remember that decision six months ago? This is the discipline for that. Because I love you, you have to learn this lesson. And many times we're more willing to listen after that time has passed than we would have been at the time. It appears to us to be very, very passive, but this father died a thousand inward deaths over the direction of that son. There's this constant weight of grief that he had to bear because there were lessons this kid would not learn any other way. Some of you are a little ahead of us in the dispensations of parenting. We're just entering the phase of having an illustrious teenager. And of course, discipline transitions from a rod of correction and being very basic to being a little more complex. And a lot of the discipline becomes, what, reaping the fruits of some of the decisions that are made. Hard to watch that, isn't it, parents? Hard to let a child make a certain decision you know you have to let them make that you also know you're going to have to watch them fall. And then you have to know you'll have to be there to pick up the pieces when the fall happens. Because sometimes that's the only way they're going to learn it. I think we see especially with a strong-willed person like Jacob, God deals with him that way a great deal. You want to be a deceiver, Jacob? How about 20 years of hard labor? Until you learn your lesson. He learned his lesson all right. (laughs) But what a price he had to pay. Of course, we touched on it last time. There's a vast difference between God's anger and God's grief. What is wrath? Wrath is what's left when grace and mercy and peace are forever past. Such a terrifying picture in Revelation. When the wrath of God is poured out, it says, without admixture into the cup of His indignation. In other words, it's undiluted. His wrath there is not diluted by grace, by mercy... By love, by patience, it's just it's poured out. But to the child of God, God's reaction to our sin is never born out of retribution. By the way, we we as parents, better keep that in mind. We don't spank our children for retribution. And one of the ways we lay the foundation for the Gospel and disciplining especially little ones is not, you've disobeyed, now let me pay you back. It's you've disobeyed God's precepts, now let me instruct you that's wrong by using physical pain. That it may drive you to God's way of salvation. When God disciplines you as His child, it's not retribution. The wages of sin, which are death, have been fulfilled by Christ on the cross. God never comes to you and disciplines you to pay you back. It's hard for us to grasp. Remember what the Son says? I'm no no more worthy to be called your son. Was that true? Kind of. Is it true you're no more worthy in and of yourself when you sin to be called the Son of God? Yes. But... In Christ, you've been made worthy to be called the Son. In Christ, the wrath is past. The God of infinite love, infinitely holy and undefiled, He has to grieve over sin, one who is in Christ. We do well to remember as a blood-bought saint and a possessor of eternal life and a joint heir with Christ. We choose to sin. We do bring pain that I don't know that we can fathom to the heart of God. What does it cost you, parents, when your children sin? And yet you yourself are defiled. You yourself dwell in a world filled with death and depravity. What must it be like for a holy God to grieve over the choice we've made, the blessings we've lost, the communion we've forfeited, his name and glory that we've spurned, so on and so on. I remember reading about John Hyde some time ago, and I remember the missionary to India, tremendous man of prayer. And there's this young man he's pleading with, and I just wouldn't quite repent. Here's John Hyde, just tears running down his face, sobbing over this man's wayward soul. The guy departs. Eventually he comes back, and the man who was there watching it watched him walk by, and as the young man walked by, he said, I just can't forget his tears. It was John Hyde's grief as a manifestation of God's grief. We brought that young man back? Thirdly, lastly, uh-huh. verse 20. A young man goes to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. I mean, perhaps his son's consternation is growing with each step towards home. He's getting more and more nervous. He's rehearsed his speech in his mind he's wondered what kind of reception he's going to get maybe they forgot about me maybe they're glad I'm gone maybe the gate's going to be locked and they change the key as he approaches that final hill the sights the sounds the sense the familiarity of home resonate in the halls of his memory fills him with shame over what he'd forsaken, the pain he'd caused and the blessing he'd lost. But long before his fa- he spotted his father, what happened? Who saw who? His father spotted him. It was like since he departed, his retreating silhouette had been etched in the mind of his father. And ever since that point, his eyes had been looking at that horizon waiting and expecting Him to come back. And once He caught a glimpse of the repentant Son, He's off to meet Him. You ever think about the fact, I don't know if optimistic is a good word, but God is expectant? Ever look at God that way? I mean, He wills all men to be saved and most won't. Okay, that part is true. But we can't view God as pacing the heavens perpetually frustrated because He wants so many things that just never happen. Here's where we've got to stick with all the statements of Scripture and understanding the character and the ways of God. And it's difficult for our minds to grasp. You know, from God's side of the ledger, not one single one of His eternal counsels is going to fail to come to pass. Not one. He tells Christ, sit at my right hand till I make thine enemies become thy footstool. He's expecting that day. Christ says, I'll not drink of this fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom. He's expectant. How about in reference to the lost? We'll be here soon in Romans 8. You want to talk about a theological brainful, Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. You see, here's the divine perspective of the whole thing. There's those whom God has chosen who He's going to call, He's going to justify, and He's going to glorify, and none of His purposes will be thwarted. That's hard for us to grasp, but the Bible doesn't indeed teach both sides of that. How about your Christian growth? Not only does God delight in the process of our growth, He expects us to grow. He expects us to. Do you know Why? Because our sermons are so good here, right? No, because he that hath begun a good work will bring it to completion. In some sense the same can be said concerning wandering sheep that are about to return home. You know, if you look at these this, this trifold parable, this threefold picture, remember in two of the parts there's active searching. They're out looking for what was lost. And this third one, there's patient waiting. And really that depicts both sides of what God does. One sense He's pursuing after us. Mercy and goodness are following me. God's presence hasn't left. But yet when we return, what do we find? There He is waiting for us. Ready to open the door of fellowship. It kind of reminds me of what we see in Revelation chapter 3. Christ is standing outside the door and knocking. And I don't think that passage is primarily evangelistic, that's one application to it. But he's speaking to the church, he's speaking to a people that had locked the Lord of glory outside the door. What does he say? If any man feel guilty long enough, if any man shed enough tears, if any man do enough penance to atone for what he did, now he says if any man open the door, I will come in and sup with him. What a glorious thing we can meet with the Lord each day, all day, but beginning in the morning. say, Lord, I'm opening the door. I'm not worthy to be called your son. No, you're not, but you're still my son. I failed yesterday. Yes, you did. But if you're ready to confess, sin, I'm ready to forgive. I'm ready to have communion with you. So what we see is this glorious picture of God How ready he is to take the prodigal back. How expectant he is looking over the hill. How desirous he is, how joyous he is to restore and to pardon. It's not even begrudgingly. You ever confess sin to the Lord and wonder if he's sitting there going, Well, all right, fine. I mean, I guess I did promise it. Like some parent he says, Yeah, Lord, you know, children, if you're obedient, I'll take you to ice cream. And they're actually obedient. He goes, Oh, brother, I guess I got to go do it. God's not like that. What's the response of those in heaven over repentance? Joy. How often? Whenever it's needed. Because God is a loving Father. Let's pray. Father, help us to see You as You are. Help us to understand Thy love and actually believe it. Help us to awake in the morning, Lord, under Thy sunshine. Sensing Thy voice and Thy leading, seeing Thy hand of goodness everywhere, convinced of Thy perfect purposes that no hand and no... Weapon formed against us shall ultimately prosper. Thank you, Lord, for these simple parables that teach us such wonderful things. Lord, banish from our minds the idea of penance, the idea of fixing our sin problem ourselves, or trying to gain some merit by feeling guilty. Help us to frankly confess it as you already know what it is. Help us to open up that doorway and sup with thee. I thank you, Lord, you are ready to pardon, quick to forgive, expecting us to return, welcoming us back. In Jesus' name, amen.